0: Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. As you know, I tend to cover lesser known cases, but I do make exceptions. And although today's story from Bristol was widely covered by the UK media, I've always been really interested in this case and so I wanted to share it. It involves a young woman with everything to live for, who seemingly vanishes into thin air. And in a theme we see regularly on this podcast it shows again the sheer randomness of life and how it can change in an instant. But before we begin, I would like to congratulate the mighty Leeds United for starting another season of glory with a superb victory. I anticipate we will have the league in the bag by March, ready to focus on the latter stages of the FA Cup. I'd also like to thank my supporters on Patreon, but especially the new recent supporters who've joined our club whilst I've been away these last few weeks. That is Susan West, Craig Davis, Lauren Knox, Molly Gibson, Alice Head, Jackie Henderson, Paul Jones and also an increased pledge from Lemonade Clarkin. Thank you all so much for your support, it is much appreciated and bonus episode 18 will be released this week. So let's set some context for December 17th 2010 with the music we were listening to. And boy, what a treat we have today. Topping the UK charts was none other than X-Factor winner, Super Matt Cardle with When We Collide. Whilst in the US, the top selling single of the year was Keisha with TikTok. And in the Australian album charts this year, friend of the show, Susan Boyle, had two records in the top five, but couldn't stop Pink taking the top spot with her greatest hits album. In Australia this month, there was the Gascoyne River flood. Although no people died in the event, an estimated 2,000 cattle perished and damage was estimated at over Australian $100 million. And in the UK, Mark Weston became the first person to face a second murder trial in the UK following the abolition of the Double Jeopardy rule. He was convicted of killing a woman in Oxfordshire in 1995 and sentenced to life imprisonment. So on to today's story from Bristol in the west of England. It was December 2010 and 27-year-old Greg Reardon was excited about the way his life was developing. And why not? He was a top surfer and skier. His job was going well. He had a supportive family and a wide circle of friends. And it was to be his first Christmas with his 25-year-old architect girlfriend, Joanna Yeats. She was his first serious girlfriend. They started working together in the autumn of 2008 and had been drawn together by their shared love of sport and the outdoors life. Soon they were a couple. They would all sorts of plans to go skiing and he would also begun rowing as this was Joe's passion. That summer they'd taken their first holiday together when they went to the Isle of Wight Festival and had a wonderful time. They soon moved in together and cemented their relationship by getting a black and white cat which they called Bernard. Like many young couples in Bristol, Joe and Greg loved living in the Clifton area of the city, attracted by its eclectic culture and vibrant nightlife. And Greg was now looking forward to their first Christmas together at Joe's parents' home in Hampshire, followed by spending New Year in Edinburgh. On Friday December 17th, as Greg drove to visit his brother in Sheffield for the weekend, he reflected on his good fortune in meeting Joe. She was friendly, bright and instantly likeable and easygoing. She just made everyone feel at ease around her. She was very rarely in an unhappy mood and she was very good at shrugging things off and just getting on and making the most of life. His parents and friends adored Joe and although their relationship was still quite new he'd even thought about proposing marriage as he was certain that he'd now met the person who he wanted to spend the rest of his life with. When he got back to the flat late on Sunday evening, there was no sign of Jo. He was not instantly concerned when he came back to find the flat empty, as Jo could have been out of any number of her friends. But Greg started to panic when he called her mobile and heard it ringing in her coat pocket within the flat. She would never go out without it. In a slight panic, he looked around the flat and then he discovered her glasses, her purse, her keys. In his words, he went just a little numb. It was the horrible realisation that something was seriously wrong. So just before midnight he called Joe's parents, but they also didn't know where she was, and so Greg called the police to report Joe missing. Her disappearance was very out of character, and the police were quickly worried. This is very, very unusual, said Detective Superintendent Mark Saunders from Avon and Somerset Police. Every possible normal explanation for why someone goes missing is coming up with a dead end. She's a vivacious, sensible, professional lady and there seems to be no obvious reason at all as to why she's gone missing. Police immediately traced Jo's last known movements. She went out on the Friday the 17th of December for a drink at the Ram pub in Bristol's Park Street with some work colleagues but she didn't stay long, a couple of hours and left the pub at around 8pm to begin the walk 20 minutes or so back to her flat. Jo then stopped off briefly at Waitrose supermarket. She didn't buy anything there and left the shop at about half past eight at which point she called her best friend Rebecca Scott arranging to meet her on Christmas Eve. By 8.40pm Joanna had reached a Tesco Express store in Clifton Village just a quarter of a mile from her flat where she bought a Tesco Finest Mozzarella tomato and basil pesto pizza and two bottles of cider. This was all captured on CCTV. And this was the last sighting of Joe, the last confirmed sighting. But although there was no CCTV to prove it, detectives were certain that she'd made it home on the Friday evening, as the Tesco receipt for the pizza was later discovered at her home, along with the coat she'd been wearing that night, her mobile phone and keys. But from there, they were at a loss. Where was she? Why did she appear to have just disappeared from the flat? A young woman attending a party at a neighbouring house on the night of Joe's disappearance recalled hearing two loud screams shortly after 9pm coming from the direction of her flat. Another neighbour who lived behind her home said that he heard a woman's voice scream, Help me! though he could not recall exactly when the incident had occurred. This information was all collated by the investigation called Operation Braid which comprised 80 detectives and civilian staff under the direction of Detective Chief Inspector Phil Jones, a senior officer with Avon and Somerset Constabulary's Major Crime Investigation Unit. It became one of the largest and potentially most controversial police operations in the force's history. Jones said that officers had been inundated with thousands of calls and were exhausting every lead and avenue that they were provided with. Police examined over 100 hours of surveillance footage, along with 293 tonnes of rubbish seized from the area around Joe's Flat. Police advised people living in the area to secure their homes, and warned women not to walk home alone after dark. The police didn't appear to be making much headway, and they were being attacked in the media for their lack of progress. The officers were baffled. Was there something they were missing or a part of her life that was hidden from them? Was she dead or was she being held captive somewhere? They just weren't sure. They'd ruled out the obvious suspect, her boyfriend Greg Reardon, as mobile phone evidence showed he was on his way to Sheffield when Joe disappeared. But although there were other people of interest, there were no other clear suspects. One police source said, we are working on the theory that the murderer may have been watching her from afar as she enjoyed a few drinks with friends while waiting for an opportunity to strike. Maybe they heard her telling friends in the pub that she was going to be alone for the weekend. Or was Joe killed after opening the door to her flat and confronting somebody? Did somebody lie in wait for her and pounce as she reached a flat, one of six in an imposing stone-built Victorian house? Or was someone already hiding in the flat? Or was it someone she knew and trusted that she let into the flat? If she was expecting someone, this may explain why she bought two ciders on the way home, although it didn't explain why only one had been partially drunk, and also why she bought another meal big enough for two people. There were other oddities causing confusion in the investigation. Police would have expected to find Joe's pizza she bought on the way home in the flat, but there was no sign of the pizza, box or wrappings. If she had eaten the pizza, surely the box would have been discovered in a nearby bin. And if she hadn't eaten the pizza, it should have been in the flat. The police decided to appeal to whoever had taken and was still possibly holding Joe, via emotional appeals. And Joe's parents, David and Teresa, made their first appeal for information at a police press conference in Bristol on Tuesday the 21st of December. They said, Joe, whatever the reason that you have not been in touch over the last few days, we want you to know that we love you dearly and are desperate to know that you are safe and well. The next day, Joe's boyfriend, Greg Reardon, made an appeal saying, I desperately want her back. I thought we would be together forever. She was my future. This Christmas was going to be our first together. I was going to spend it with her family which is always such a big deal for a boyfriend. We were both really happy in our jobs and our lives. But as time went on, friends and family became more and more fearful that Joe wouldn't be coming home. Her mum, Teresa, saw nothing to show them that Joe could be in any sort of trouble, saying, I think she was abducted after getting home to her flat. Her dad, David, said shortly into the investigation, I feel sure she would not have gone out by herself leaving all these things behind and she was taken away somewhere. She knew her daughter had planned to spend a quiet weekend in the flat in Clifton to pamper herself and also to prepare for a party that she and Greg were planning to host the following Tuesday. She said she had a nice new flat and new things and she wanted it to be special. She wanted to finish her Christmas shopping and to do some cooking and baking ready for Tuesday. They both recalled the last time they'd spoken to their treasured daughter. Joe had spoken to her dad a week or so earlier, when she had called him to ask what he wanted as a Christmas gift, and Teresa had stayed with her daughter at her Clifton flat at about the same time when she'd been to Bristol to watch a filming of the TV show, Deal or No Deal. As Christmas approached, hope was evaporating quickly. Developments were sparse in the case, and investigators were still puzzled over just what could have happened to the seemingly happy 25-year-old. But it was the morning of Christmas Day when all hope was finally extinguished. It was a snowy, sunny morning as an elderly couple were walking their dogs on a remote road by a golf course a few miles from Joe and Greg's flat. That morning Daniel Birch and his wife Rebecca had opened their presents and then set off to walk their chocolate Labrador dog Roxy shortly before 9am. They parked their Mini 1 car near Longwood Lane and David Birch said after they'd walked about 100 metres he'd seen what he thought was a lump in the snow but had carried on walking although his mind was telling him that there was a body back there. He said to his wife, that was a body. He handed the lead to her, went back and saw the shape of a body in the snow and saw a jeans pocket, the waistband of underwear and skin and he phoned the police. The couple had spotted Joe's frozen body partially covered by snow on a grass verge. It looked as though the killer had tried to throw the body over a dry stone wall to the quarry behind in which case it may never have been found but it looked like the killer or killers had been unable to do so and so Joe's body had just been left on the verge covered with leaves. Joanna Yeats had been strangled and she was just 25 years old when she died. David and Teresa, her parents, formally identified the body as their daughter in the subsequent days and Greg, as well as her parents and her brother Chris, laid a bouquet of flowers at the spot where Jo had been found, along with a picture of her on her graduation day. The discovery of the body led to immediate interest in the case hitting fever pitch. One tabloid suggested that Jo may have been held captive for several days before she was killed. Another theory was she may have been dumped at the scene alive and died of hypothermia. The public was fascinated by the details. What had happened to the pizza, which was never found? Why had she bought two bottles of cider? Was she meeting someone? Was the killer waiting for her at the flat? Why was there no sign of a break in? David and Theresa Yates showed great bravery in making an emotional appeal for information to find the person who had killed their daughter. They said they were in torment and feared that people who could lead the police to the killer had not come forward. Teresa said, Many of us are armchair detectives. Hey, we know that, don't we? The nation is shocked and appalled by what has happened to our daughter. Do you know someone who has been somehow justifying her being killed? Has anyone you know had an unusual or inexplicable reaction? Was their behaviour unusual? on the weekend of 17th, 18th and 19th of December or throughout the last three weeks? Do you know someone who's been behaving out of character either by actions or what is said or not said? Do you know someone who has suddenly become reclusive, quiet or vocal? But whilst the police inquiry into Joe's murder continued, the public, aided by the media, had firmly made up its mind who was responsible. Initially, the finger of public suspicion had appeared to point at Greg Reardon. After all, as we know, it's usually those with close relationship to the victims who commit these crimes. But once he was no longer a suspect to police, all attention shifted from Greg to the owner of the flat lived in by Joe and Greg, a man called Christopher Jefferies. A retired English teacher who lived alone, he combined the prettiness of a polo neck with eccentric, unkempt white hair and a shabby old coat. Under the deranged scrutiny of the media, he appeared to be smirking and he looked, well, he looked a little wild I guess. As well as owning the building, he lived in the same block as Joe and Greg's flat and the papers were full of his picture. Just two days after Joe's body was discovered, police arrested him on suspicion of murder. He had been on the radar of the police for a while, from when he told police he had seen the missing woman leave her flat with two other people on the night she disappeared. If true, this would have made him the last person to see Joe alive, which ultimately shone suspicion onto him. It also emerged that he would helped Greg Reardon fix his car earlier in the day on December the 17th, meaning that he was aware that Joe would have been on her own for the weekend, and living in the same block, he could easily have called on Joe, who would have let him into her flat. To give you an idea of just how convinced the UK media was of his guilt, here are some of the details published in the tabloids about Christopher Jeffries. One said, A strict authoritarian known as blue hair or comb-over for his unusual hairstyle. His eccentric manner and long-term bachelor status sparked unfounded school gossip that he was gay. Another said, He was always odd, turning pink at the least provocation. And I remember he liked to wear a school scarf, which even in 1975 we thought rather cheesy. Another recalled his nosy neighbour, Christopher Jefferies. The former tenant said, My wife wasn't keen on him at all, and he made her feel uncomfortable. He always seemed to be hanging about. If we left the flat, he was always outside. On several occasions, he even entered our flat unannounced. He acted surprised and left when my wife confronted him. It was intrusive. He looked very strange as well, and it did make my wife feel so uncomfortable. One more. A former student said that the teacher made them watch films about Nazi death camps and scared some children with his macabre fascination. He said, "Jeffrey's just wanted to show us death. He was obsessed with it. He has these eyes where there seems to be no colour and his expression was so blank. Like there was nothing there, I felt scared, but never threatened enough to go to police. There was just one problem with this trial by media. Well, two in fact. One, it is absolutely outrageous that someone's character can be destroyed like this when they've not sought fame. And two, Christopher Jeffries was not guilty. After several in-depth interviews, extensive searches of the flat he owned that Joe lived in, and forensic searches of his possessions, police ruled him out as a suspect. He was released on bail following two days in police custody, and Christopher later ended up receiving substantial damages after suing eight newspapers for the wholly undeserved harm done to his reputation. He was also later issued an apology by the police for the distress he suffered during their investigation. But unbeknown to the media, the police had made real progress and was certain they knew who killed Joanna Yates. It was her neighbour, Vincent Tabak, who lived with his girlfriend in flat 2. And they were right, he had killed her. Tabak appeared on the surface to be an intelligent, sociable, loving man devoted to his girlfriend, his family and his friends. He was born in 1978 and brought up in the small town of Uden, near Eindhoven in the Netherlands, with his brother and three sisters. At 18, he began studying at the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the Eindhoven University of Technology. He graduated in 2003 with a Master of Science degree and continued to study, starting a PhD around how people use space and buildings and public areas. In 2008, his PhD was published. He had been saddened by the death of his father and wrote in the acknowledgements to his thesis, I miss you and regret that you're not able to see the end results of my PhD. But on the positive side, he'd also met his first real girlfriend and things were going very well. Tanya Mawson was the daughter of a Harvard-educated lawyer who he'd met through The Guardian's online dating site, Soulmates. In the acknowledgements on his PhD, he thanked Tanya for her support. I'm very happy she entered my life, he wrote. I wonder what you think. To me, these acknowledgements are the equivalent of a self indulgent Oscar speech, aren't they? Maybe at the end of every podcast, I should start thanking my fish who died in 1988 for its inspiration and support. Moving on, when he finally left education and got a job, Tobacco was 29. It was September 2007, and he was based near Bristol at the headquarters of the engineering consultants Bureau Happold, where he worked as a people flow analyst. examining how people moved around schools, airports and sports stadiums. On the day that he killed Joe, Tabak was looking at how pilgrims circulate around Mecca. Tabak's first home in the UK was a flat in a Georgian terrace in Bath. In June 2009 he and his girlfriend moved together to Clifton in Bristol. The pair seemed content and friends say they discussed marrying and starting a family. Tabak seemed a pretty normal sort of guy whatever that means. He liked a beer after work and was pretty sociable, once organising an outing to see a Dutch comedian when he toured the UK. He liked sports, including sailing and bowling, and he was interested in photography and travelling, having visited South America and Asia. Toback had actually been one of the first people spoken to by police after Greg had reported Joe missing. Less than four hours after Greg had dialed 999 in the early hours of the morning, a police officer banged on the door of flat two with Greg, which Tabak answered and denied all knowledge of seeing Joe and knowing what had happened to her. Then a few days later, on the 23rd of December, police revisited Tabak and carried out a search of the flat he shared with Tanya to check that Joe was not there. Tabak did not seem overly worried and he later joked to friends that they must have thought he'd stashed her in a drawer. Tabak and Tanya then left Bristol to spend Christmas in Cambridge at her parents' home. On Christmas Eve, Detective Constable Karen Thomas, a member of the police's major crime investigation team, spoke to Tabak by telephone about his movements on the night that Joe had disappeared. Tabak told her he was in all evening, before driving in the early hours of the morning, to collect his girlfriend who'd been out at a work's do. He told the detective that he didn't know Joe, as she and Greg had only just moved to the block of flats at the start of October and he'd left for a business trip in California on the 6th of November, only returning on the 11th of December, six days before the killing. After Christmas, Tabak and Tanya headed to the Netherlands to spend New Year with his family. Joe's disappearance wasn't just big news in the UK, and in the Netherlands on the 30th of December, Tabak and Tanya watched a television news report showing the arrest of Joe's landlord, Christopher Jeffries. And this is where Tabak blundered. He knew that Bristol police were under intense pressure to make an arrest and with Christopher Jeffries firmly in the frame, Tabak contacted them and suggested the landlord had been out and about in his car on the night of Joe's death. DC Karen Thomas headed straight to Amsterdam and on New Year's Eve she spoke to Tabak at a hotel near Schiphol Airport for six hours. And now the picture started to change as DC Thomas felt that Tabak seemed shifty suspicious and uncertain in his answers. He talked to her about Jeffreys, but seemed, in Thomas's words, overly interested in the forensic examinations police were carrying out. Tabak also gave DC Thomas a contradictory version of what he had done on the night that Joe disappeared, explaining that he'd actually left his flat twice, once to take photographs of the snow and the second time to go to Asda. He also suggested he may have been in the hallway of Joe's flat, not when she was there, but when he was talking to the landlord, Christopher Jefferies, before Joe went missing. DC Thomas asked him to provide a DNA sample and fingerprints so they could be eliminated if they were found in the flat. Tabak was, well, relatively happy to do so, but although he cooperated, DC Thomas could detect his uneasiness. And then when he heard the news that Christopher Jefferies had been bailed, Tabak felt it was just a matter of time until the police came knocking again. When he and Tanya drove back to the UK on the 2nd of January, Tabak expected to be arrested as soon as he passed through customs. He was nervous. Everyone he heard approaching his flat he assumed was the police and his anxiety level shot through the roof. He began to drink excessively and take sleeping pills and even considered suicide by jumping off nearby Clifton Suspension Bridge. In fact, the changes in the way he acted were just the sort of changes in behaviour that David and Theresa Yates had asked people to look for. It was the 20th of January when the call finally came, which told him that his DNA had been found on Joe's body. He initially maintained his innocence, and even tried to blame the lab that had carried out the forensic testing, suggesting it was insecure, and then saying it was a conspiracy that a scientist may have been paid to set him up. But the DNA evidence was damning, and 30 days after he'd killed Joe, tobacco appeared before Bristol magistrates charged with murder. Then in May, at his trial at the Old Bailey, he admitted manslaughter, but denied murder and delayed giving his explanation as to what had actually happened until the moment he was called to give evidence. This was the very first time anyone had heard his side of the story. He claimed that Joe invited him into her flat and made a flirty remark as they chatted in the kitchen which encouraged him to make a pass at her. As he went to kiss Joe, Tabak said that she pulled away and screamed and to stop her he gripped her throat with his right hand and put his left hand over her mouth. After about 20 seconds, she slumped lifelessly to the floor. He had killed her. Soon after the murder, Tabak texted his girlfriend saying Miss you loads. It's boring here without you. And after this he loaded Joe's body into his car boot before going shopping to Asda for beer and crisps. While Tabak was in Asda, Greg had texted Joe saying, I hope you have a good night in the pub. Tobac then texted his girlfriend again saying, How are you? I am at Asda buying some crisps. Was bored. Can't wait to pick you up. And at some point that evening, Vincent Tobac Tabak moved Joe's body, put her in the boot of the car and drove it to Longwood Lane. Tabak did accept that following the killing, he'd research subjects such as the difference between murder and manslaughter and the definition of sexual assault. When detectives announced they were looking for the box of pizza that Joe had bought, which he said he ate by the way, Tabak scoured the internet to see when rubbish had been collected. But he repeatedly said he could not remember how Jo had come by her 43 injuries which were beamed on screens around the court or even when she'd been frightened. The injuries included wounds to her face, throat and arms. Though her genes had not been tampered with her t-shirt had been pulled up from above her breasts and part of her right breast exposed. A sample of tobacco DNA was found on her chest however scientists could not establish what it came from. But privately, detectives believed that Tabak was well aware of what happened. They think he calculated that there was no point in denying he'd killed her, but gambled that the detectives would not be able to prove that he meant to do so. They thought it was a sex attack, and that Tabak might have derived a thrill from the act of strangling his neighbour from having her at his mercy and under his control. They were certain that the motivation was sexual after what they discovered in his internet history, and this suggested that the sexual naivety that was being used in his defence was all a lie. Computer forensics experts found that Tabak had viewed pornography depicting violence towards women. In some of the films he viewed, men held women by the neck while they had sex. Analysts examined four computers that Tabak had access to, and found images from films showing women bound, gagged, degraded and controlled by men. They also found a film in which two women were bundled into a car boot. In legal arguments not heard by the jury, Nigel Lickley QC prosecuting said that tobacco clearly liked films showing women being held by the neck and claim this ought to be spelt out in open court. It might shed light on the need to hold a woman for long enough and the need to squeeze hard enough to take her life, he said. Detectives were especially interested by three images of a slight, Blonde haired woman resembling Joe, who in one shot was pulling up her pink top to expose her breasts. When Joe's body was found, her pink top was pulled up, exposing her bra and part of one breast. The pictures of the blonde woman in pink had a resonance with the way that Joe's body was found, Lickley argued. Police believe Tobacco may have pulled her shirt up either before or after death. And of course, Tobacco's DNA was found on her chest. The time at which Tabak was looking at some of these images was also important. As experts discovered that on the morning of the day he killed Joe, he'd accessed a pornographic website, although it's not clear if he viewed any films. He certainly had pornography on his mind, argued QC Lickley. And after Joe's death, Tabak's viewing of pornography seemed significant as he switched between looking at online articles relating to Joe and watching pornographic films. On one day, within two minutes, he went from researching progress police were making with the murder investigation to viewing violent pornographic films, some of which contained images of women being held by the throat. In a film viewed at this time, a woman tells a man, "Choke me." Q.C. Lickley argued that the pornography found on Tabak's computer could indicate that on the 17th of December, he graduated from being a viewer of violent images to a participant. In further legal argument, it emerged in the months leading up to Joe's murder, Tabak researched and contacted a number of escort agencies. In May 2010, while on a business trip to Newcastle, he accessed the website Adult Work, which lists adult service providers. Detectives claim they established he made late-night calls to numbers associated with escort agencies. Then just a month before he killed Joe, he went to California on business and again, began researching sex sites and contacting escort agencies. One site he looked at was called 007 Exotic Girls. He paid a subscription to another, the Erotic Review, which offers escort contact information. On Friday, the 3rd of December, two weeks before the murder, whilst in the U.S., tabak phoned a sex worker called Mimi. Q.C. Lickley told the judge, the call was returned, and almost immediately, Tabak made two cash withdrawals. Of $100 each. On the 5th of December, Tabak left the hotel his company had paid for and checked in under a false name, Francis Tabak, at the Palm Tree Inn, 150 miles from LA. The prosecution believed that the withdrawal of cash and the checking into a hotel under a false name could be evidence of him paying for sexual services. Of course, there's nothing legal about that, but it was just showing another side to Tabak that he didn't want to show to the court. And based on this added insight, detectives believe that Tabak may have been spying on Jo and could have found an excuse to knock on her door that night rather than being spontaneously invited in. Rather than the quick death suggested by Tabak, it's possible police believe that the attack could have been much more sustained, starting in the hallway which was found in a real mess. It could have continued in the bedroom. One of the earrings Jo is thought to have been wearing was discovered beneath the duvet. There is also the possibility that something may have happened after Tabak carried Joe's body back to his own flat. Certainly, according to the prosecution, there was a delay of more than an hour before he put her body into the boot of his car and drove it away. The trial judge, Justice Field, accepted that the viewing of pornography showing violence or a threat of violence was reprehensible, but he did not allow the jury to hear the evidence because he felt its value in explaining why Tabak acted as he did could not outweigh the prejudice it would cause his defence. He also turned down the prosecution's suggestion that the evidence about escort agencies should go before the jury to correct the impression that Tabak gave of being sexually naive and in a loving, monogamous relationship. The jury was left ignorant of what police believed was important evidence. And in court it became clear that Tabak was quite a complex character, Friends said he could be immature and needy. When the police interviewed him in Amsterdam on New Year's Eve, they were surprised at how his sister fussed over him. After Tabak killed Joe, he sent desperate text messages to his girlfriend, in which, though hiding what he had done, he tried to reach out to her for support. It could be argued there was a real contrast in his behaviour after murdering Joe, a mixture of cunning and naivety. Detectives believe, for instance, that he was sharp enough to buy rock salt to place on a spot in the snow between his flat and Joe's where he dropped the body and so to cover his tracks. And he began to carefully research the difference between murder and manslaughter. But then his big error was to contact the police after they arrested his landlord, Christopher Jeffries, and try to help pin the blame on him. It seems odd that Tabak went from being a viewer of pornography and possibly a user of sex workers To a killer in one leap, Tabak had no criminal record, and he said in the witness box that he'd never been in a police station for his arrest. He absolutely denied he got a sexual thrill out of killing Jo, or that he was aroused when he strangled her. The jury returned with their verdict. They found Tabak guilty of murder with a split of ten to two. The judge made it clear he believed the killing had been a sex crime. He said that Tabak had said he wanted to kiss Joe, but he was satisfied that the killer intended to go further and was only frustrated by her screams. Surrounded by six security guards, Tabak stood slightly hunched in the dock. The judge told Tabak he'd not even known Joe's name when he'd entered her flat. He said his murderous attack was a dreadful, evil act against a vulnerable young woman in her own home. That wicked act ended the life of a young woman who was entitled to expect a life of happiness and fulfilment. He said that Jo had died in pain, beset with fear and struggling desperately for her life. The judge said he thought Tabak was a very dangerous man, as well as being thoroughly deceitful, dishonest and manipulative. He had caused devastating heartache to Jo's family and to her boyfriend Greg Reardon. After killing Jo, putting her body in his car and dumping it on a country lane, Doing so, he had forced Joe's loved ones to endure seven days of agony before her body was found on Christmas Day. It was a terribly cruel thing to do. Greg Reardon turned and stared at the man who had murdered his girlfriend as he was led away. Joe's parents were in the public gallery for most of the trial, but they were not there that day to see Tabak convicted. Speaking after sentencing, Joe's parents released the following statement: "We attended the trial of Joe's murderer." not to see justice handed out to him, but to find out as much as we could about what really happened from the time Joe disappeared to when Joe's murderer was arrested. We never considered this as a process of justice for Joe. The last four weeks have been more stressful and intense than we ever imagined. Although we've been made aware of the nature of much of the evidence against Joe's killer, some of the details which came out were a surprise. There was never any doubt in our minds that Joe would be murdered, and that we fully expected him to lie when he went into the witness box. We came here with little or no expectation of hearing what happened on the 17th of December, but we needed to see him and to hear what he had to say firsthand. We saw no emotion or remorse or regret for what he did to Joe. We felt all emotion expressed by him was false. All we heard were words of self-pity. For us it is with regret that capital punishment is not a possible option for his sentence. The best we can hope for him is that he spends the rest of his life incarcerated, where his life is a living hell, being the recipient of all evils, deprivations and degradations that his situation can provide. For ourselves, this trial has had little effect on our lives. We've still lost our daughter and our son has lost his sister. Our main sorrow is that Jo was not allowed to start her own family, have children and achieve her potential. We will never get over our loss, how she was murdered and the total lack of respect with which her body was treated. We still miss hearing her happy voice and seeing her living life to the full. In January 2011, detectives investigating the case found 145 indecent images of children on tobacco devices. For this, in March 2015, he was given an additional 10 months imprisonment. If we then fast forward to December 2017, Joe's parents spoke to the Sun newspaper to say they were now finally ready to add a headstone to her grave. Her mum Teresa said, What few inscribed words can ever be a fitting tribute to Joe's life. We've been struggling to put up a headstone and been putting it off. It's just too difficult and too final. But we've finally made a decision. Life goes on. We just carry on but it doesn't get any easier. Time doesn't heal. Jo's parents also said that they've lost contact with Greg Reardon, the partner she'd lived with, and planned to marry at the time of her death. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Just a terrible story, isn't it? About someone who had everything to live for, had her life randomly snatched away, and the long-term effect this murder had on her friends and family. We all have to trust people to get by in life, and the sheer bad luck of Joe's neighbour turning out to be someone with the capacity for evil of Vincent Tabak is hard to accept. It's just not fair. On the UK True Crime Facebook group, we've been discussing this case, and there is a view that this is unlikely to have been Tabak's first crime. I wonder. I was saddened to hear that her boyfriend, Greg Reardon, had lost contact with Joe's parents, but I guess we can all understand how this may happen. Greg spoke to the Sun newspaper after Tabak's sentence, and I thought his words were particularly interesting, he said. At the first police conference on the Tuesday, when I saw all the cameras I just thought, I've seen this type of story before, I know how it's going to end. He cursed the probability of the situation and said, why couldn't we just win the lottery instead? It's probably just as feasible as getting murdered by your next door neighbour. He appeared to remain calm and displayed huge dignity during the high profile trial. He said, the trial was a bloody nightmare, but we all had to just grit our teeth and ride it through. It was surreal facing to back in court. I just had to keep calm and get through it. And after the trial was over, I felt a big release of tension, but it just left me a little numb and empty. I was glad of the result, though. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please discuss this case and all other aspects of UK True Crime at our Facebook page. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True where you can find soon to be 18 full-length bonus episodes, along with other exclusive content. So until we speak again next week, have a good one, take it easy, and cheerio. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in-person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Ah, in my dentist's office